Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. And what? What are you doing here? Um, I I don't know if anyone is still going to listen to this show after last week's episode where uh, I talked about Florida. Maybe. I think I did. That was the goal to talk about Florida. Um, not sure what actually happened. I'm scared to actually even go back and listen to it again. Um, and really, uh, to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, uh, that episode was the last episode I recorded as a childless human being. Um, which hopefully maybe that comes as a relief to some of you who didn't realize I record ahead, um, probably worried for the safety of my child. Um, in the state that I was in. Uh, but no, I, I recorded a lot of those episodes. I recorded way ahead, uh, because I did not know what kind of, uh, recording schedule I would be able to have after, uh, Finn was here. And I still don't, I'm just going to try to record whenever I can. And so, uh, as I record this, it's been about six weeks since he was born and, you know, uh, it's a thing, you know, look, here's the thing. I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm a dad. When someone refers to me as a dad, I just like, I, I don't know who you're talking to. Cause I'm not a dad and I'm not a daddy. I'm not either one of those things. And so that word still doesn't resonate with me. I just feel like there's a baby living in our house right now. Um, so that's, it's strange. Uh, not saying that I don't think he's mine. I, he, he looks like mine. Pretty sure he's mine. I'm like 99.9%. He's white. So that eliminates a sizable chunk of potential issues. But um, yeah, yeah, the aside from the baby, my house is falling apart. Uh, the, the ceiling in his bedroom collapsed. He wasn't in there, thankfully. Uh, but that's that was fun. Uh, and just, you know, just life, life is life is life, you know? And, uh, some people have less of a hard time with it than others, but sometimes I have a hard time with it. And so with that expert segue alert, we're going to look at a group of people on today's episode who have had a hard time with life uh, ever since the white people showed up. And so we're going to talk about some Native American stories from history. Hopefully I remember still how to do this show because it's been uh, about five months. No, four months since I've recorded one of these. So uh, four stories today. Uh, we are going to look at uh, the stories of Jack Fiddler Swift Runner, Joe Medicine Crow, and our first story of an unknown Catawba warrior. Story time. We begin sometime in the 1700s because 
why would natives be concerned with our white mandates and historical timelines? Anyway, uh, the Catawba tribe in the Carolinas, uh, local tribe, kind of in the Charlotte area. Um, you know, there's Catawba County. There is the Catawba. Uh, I think it's the Catawba tribe that owns the casino, the new casino over at Kings Mountain and uh, all that kind of stuff. They they. And the Seneca tribe in upstate Western New York decided they were going to fight each other because I, I don't know, one side didn't like how the other decorated their teepees or like whatever issues Native Americans had with each other back then. That sounds very ignorant of me, but whatever. Um, one Catawba warrior who has gone unnamed but has been recorded in James Adair's The History of American Indians. Uh, he decided to make the Senecas regret ever starting a war with a tribe that was like four whole states away, even though the states didn't really exist at this point. I mean, they kind of did for the most part, but not really. Um, one day, this Catawba warrior was hunting with his rifle in the Appalachian wilderness when he was ambushed by a group of Seneca warriors. Now, unfortunately for these Senecas, uh, the Catawba warrior escaped and then he just started running and he did not stop. Well, he made periodic breaks to stop, turn around and shoot at the Senecas who were still chasing after him. But he just kept running. But after killing seven Seneca warriors, they finally caught up to this guy, stripped him naked, tied him up and then marched him back to New York. And as they passed through each Seneca village, uh, the residents were encouraged to come out and whip this Catawba warrior as he passed. Uh, the Senecas were actually planning to burn him alive once they got back to their home base, but when they stopped to camp, they actually untied the Catawba warrior because they figured they, I guess they ought to be a little nice to the guy. And one night, the Catawba warrior just like walked off the campsite, jumped into a nearby river, and then swam to the other side because that is what you do when your captors untie you and then ignore you in the dark. So by the time he reached the other side, the Senecas had grabbed their rifles and began firing at the Catawba warrior. And rather than like disappear into the woods, this dude who was still naked, by the way, uh, he turned around and he just like pre like he just spread his butt cheeks open in front of them and just kind of smacked his butt in their direction because, you know, butts are funny to all cultures. And that's great. Uh, he then uh, turned around to face them, let out a war whoop, and then disappeared into the woods while they are firing at him, which is crazy. Uh, the Senecas waited two whole days to start chasing after this guy, assuming, I guess they thought finding a naked guy in the woods wouldn't be too terribly difficult. However, this Catawba warrior didn't run back to his life in the Carolinas like you would might think he would. Instead, he stayed relatively close by and actually stalked the Seneca tribe. And on the first night that the Seneca gave chase, the Catawba warrior, he just like walks right into camp and butchers all five warriors with their own tomahawks. Like this dude does not care anymore. Uh, the next day, another group of Seneca warriors arrived at the camp. And after a brief discussion on how to go about achieving or retrieving their prisoner of war, they just decided that it wasn't worth it. Uh, even more, they assumed now that he was just some kind of Native American wizard. And in an attempt to escape any potential curse that this Catawba warrior had placed on them, they abandoned the town 
that he had initially escaped from. So this one dude just has scared a, a huge portion of the Seneca tribe. They abandoned this town. They think that he's a magical wizard naked, going to shoot native American wizard spells out of his dick or something. I don't know, but he basically wins. And then he ran nonstop for several days back home to the Carolinas. Um, on the way back, he did stop at the original site of his capture, dug up the bodies of the original seven Seneca. He killed and scalp them because why not? Why not come back with proof of your of your story? I guess uh, our next story here is of Swift Runner, who was a Cree uh, Indian who lived in Central Alberta, Canada, and worked as a trapper and police officer. Uh, unfortunately, he became an alcoholic, as a lot of them did. Uh, he turned violent, became very unpredictable. And things got so bad that he was not only fired from the police force, but he was actually kicked out of his Cree tribe as well. Um, in 1878, Swift Runner was having a difficult time obtaining food thanks to a harsh winter. And at some point, he decided to take his family, which was his wife, six children, mother-in-law, and his brother, into the forest. And they were never seen again. Uh, instead, when spring came back around, Swift Runner reappeared at a local Catholic mission and told the priests and people there that his entire family was dead. Uh, understandably, they were like, oh, man, how did that happen? And Swift Runner said that because they had not been able to find food all winter, everyone had starved to death. And there was just kind of a small problem with that. Swift Runner looked super healthy for someone who allegedly had not eaten much all winter. Even more, the priests at the mission knew of other Cree in the area who had found plenty of food while they were able to go hunting during this winter. Uh, there was also a Hudson's Bay Company outpost, roughly 25 miles away, that would have given Swift Runner and his family emergency supplies if they had needed them. So, the priests, they're really suspicious about this. And so they turned Swift Runner over to authorities who then ordered him uh, to lead them to the campsite where they had spent the winter. When they arrived, they found bones scattered all over the ground, some of which had been broken up and hollowed out as if someone or something, I guess, had sucked out the marrow. Uh, when they found a human, uh, a pot full of human fat, Swift Runner was like, oh, all right, you guys, you got me. Or probably he's more like, okay, guys, you got me, dear. Because he's in Canada, right? Um, <laughs> stupid. Look, it's my first episode back. Give me a break. Uh, he finally comes clean and he tells police that he had been possessed by something called a Wendigo, which uh, in Canadian Native American culture, they're, yeah, it's North America. They're still Native Americans. That's probably what that means, right? Anyway, uh, a Wendigo is basically like this mythological spirit from other Algonquin tribes throughout Canada. Um, the Wendigo will possess people and cause them to become extremely violent and force them to murder and cannibalize their victims. Uh, in physical form, Wendigos are often bigger than human beings and grow in proportion to the human it has just eaten. It's weird kind of, I guess, math on that. I don't know how it all works. That's just how it's explained. Um, Wendigos, to this point, are always very hungry and they must constantly eat in order to stay alive. And so Swift Runner 
claimed that this Wendigo possessed him. And because it was hungry, hungry Wendigo, uh, it commanded him to eat his entire family. And Canadian police, in the understanding way that they treated their own Native American tribes, thought that was the dumbest thing they had ever heard of and arrested him. Uh, at the trial, the, uh, the jury deliberated for roughly 20 minutes before sentencing him to death. And I got to imagine, like, in a deliberation that quickly, it's got to be like 18 minutes of people just getting into the room, maybe getting a coffee, a little snack, getting settled down. And then it's just like, all right, Bob. What's your verdict? Guilty. Okay. Dave, guilty. All right. Uh, whoever you are, guilty. All right, cool. And just going down the list. And then it, it's like, all right. And then he's going to write down their verdict. And then that's it. Like, it's all just a formality that takes 20 minutes, I guess. Um, Swift Runner was then executed by hanging on December 20th, 1879. However, prior to his death, uh, he converted to Catholicism and then gave a speech admitting his guilt of murdering and cannibalizing his family. Uh, moving on to uh, Zawuno Gizigo Galbo, otherwise known as Jack Fiddler, because that's so much easier to pronounce. Uh, he was born in the forest of the Upper Severn River in northern Ontario at some point in the 1830s. He was a member of the Sucker Clan, which is a part of the Ashinaabe people that were indigenous to Canada. Uh, so he is... Uh, an aboriginal it's probably not aboriginal canadian aboriginal is australia he's, he's a native canadian but also native american still anyway um he was oh don't they call it like the original people or the ah oh, what is the term for it gonna pause the episode real quick and figure it out first nations is what it's called i could have just paused it without saying i was gonna pause it you wouldn't have known um it is also i'm also looking here uh aboriginal is also used uh, to talk about this is, oh, man, just learning so much from stories I've already written and learned about. Anyway, uh, he was part of the soccer clan, part of the Ashinaabe people that were indigenous to Canada. And by the 1860s, the Hudson's Bay company was operating a trading post at nearby Island Lake and Fiddler. He's working with this company. He emerges as one of the more prominent leaders of the suckers. Uh, he took five wives as was common custom in that group. Uh, polygamy, not just for Mormons, but just kind of a tribal thing. Uh, he also had 13 children and Fiddler. He followed in his father foots, father's footsteps, and he became a shaman for the tribe and allegedly had the ability to conjure animals that protected the suckers from spells from uh, other tribes, I guess. Uh, he also allegedly had the power to defeat the Wendigo, unlike Swift runner. But, uh, in most cases, uh, sucker people would just come to Fiddler and ask them to kill sick family members before they turned into Wendigos because part of the Wendigo lore is that if someone gets really sick, they're more susceptible to being possessed by the Wendigo. That's also just called like Lyme's disease or something, I think. Anyway, um, he uh, over over his lifetime, uh, Fiddler claimed to have killed as many as 14 Wendigos. Well, in 1907, two members of the Northwest Mounted Police visited Island Lake and heard about Fiddler's Wendigo power from one of his in-laws. And since the police were busy uh, enforcing all kinds of silly Canadian laws on indigenous tribes in the area at that time, they decided to pay Fiddler a visit and arrested him and his brother Joseph for murder because 
technically under Canadian law, you kill another person, whether they're possessed by a Wendigo or not, or I guess proactively killing them so they don't get possessed by a Wendigo. Anyway, it's still murder. Um, the Canadian police also demanded that every man in the sucker tribe give up their extra wives because white people law states that you can only have one at a time and they don't care what your tribal law says. You're in Canada now, sucker. Anyway, uh, this was especially shocking for the sucker tribes because these two police officers who had showed up and started telling them all these rules were the first white people they had ever seen. So like, that's gotta be weird, right? Like you're just living your entire life. It's probably like a white person living in North Dakota. You live your entire life and you just think that this is what people look like. And then all of a sudden there's some new people showing up and they're like, these are the rules, eh? And they look completely different than you. So what's like, see, in my mind, here's what's crazy. In my mind, if I'm like uh, Jack Fiddler, I'm thinking those are Wendigos probably. And so I'm probably going to try to kill them. Uh, but it didn't. It didn't work like that. Um, Fiddler and his brother were formally charged with murdering Joseph's daughter-in-law the previous year, even though, uh, she was obviously guys, a Wendigo and she needed to be killed to save the rest of the tribe, obviously. Um, so as these two awaited trial, Canadian media picked up this story and painted the sucker people as like this tribe of murderous devil worshipers. They're not. Um, while police thought about how they could use the case to give themselves more notoriety, uh, Joseph or, uh, sorry, Jack Fiddler actually ended up escaping from captivity and just hanged himself. Like he wasn't going to let the white man win. he was going to, you know, go out on uh, his terms. Uh, Angus Ray, a sucker eyewitness who was brought by the police testified at Joseph's trial and explained that it was sucker custom to kill people who were very sick and about to turn into Wendigos. And he explained that the fiddlers usually did the euthanizing themselves, but that it was all totally legal and totally fine because that's how sucker culture operated. Um, despite pleas from missionaries and representatives from the Hudson's Bay company, uh, Jack's brother, Joseph was sentenced to death. And although the sentence was actually appealed, it wasn't, uh, or, you know, it wasn't reversed until three days after he was executed. So it didn't matter anyway. Our final story here is of Joseph Medicine Crow, who was born on October 27th, 1913 on the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana. Uh, his father was a highly distinguished Crow warrior chief and his great grandfather, White Man Runs Him, often told Joe about his experiences as a scout for General George Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. So uh, some big connections to some of the bigger moments in American history. Um, and so because of his family's history of war, Joe wanted to follow in those footsteps to become a war chief himself. So in 1929, he goes off to Oklahoma where he attends various schools before ultimately obtaining his master's degree in anthropology from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles in 1938, making him the first member of the Crow tribe to do so. I don't think that's how you become a war chief, but you know, good for him. Good for him for pursuing some higher education. Um, well, <clears throat> he was actually on his way to uh, obtaining his doctorate in anthropology when World War II began, which forced him to leave school and work at a shipyard in Washington. But he's like, all right, this is my opportunity. 
I'm going to go and be this war chief now. So he joins the army where he was assigned to the 103rd Infantry Division and shipped off. Now, during the war, Joe, you know, he's he's still fighting for America, fighting for the United States, but he's representing really the the Crow Nation. And so he paid homage to his Crow heritage by wearing red war paint on his arms and a yellow eagle's feather beneath his helmet. He also, again, like I said, took the war as an opportunity to go through the four tasks required to becoming a Crow War Chief. What are those tasks, John? Well, I'm about to tell you. So the first task to becoming a war chief is to touch an enemy without killing him. All right. Number two is to take an enemy's weapon. Number three is to steal an enemy's horse, which already is very problematic in World War II uh, because horses not as necessary in war anymore. Uh, And then number four was to lead a successful war party. So the first two tasks were completed rather easily when he pounced on a German soldier, fist fought him, and then wrestled him into a chokehold, uh, literally forcing this guy to actually cry out for his mother. Uh, Joe then let this soldier go, but kept his weapon. So touched an enemy. It says touch. It didn't say to what extent. So Joe punching this guy and choking him out does count. Uh, And he takes his gun. So Later in the war, Joe then led a squadron of troops to a German camp where, much to his surprise, he actually found and stole 50 horses belonging to the Nazis. So the the hard, seemingly hardest one, or most unlikely, actually does happen. So having completed three tasks, um, and actually, really, the that one satisfied the the other task of leading a successful war party, right? Cause he's leading the squadron and they stole these horses and that was a successful mission. So he completes these tasks required to become a war chief. And so Joe returns to the Crow reservation after the war for his coronation. Um, he did become the last war chief in the tribe's history, mainly, like I said, because no one uses horses in war anymore. I don't know why you can't just change the rules. Like, steal a plane that how nuts would that be right now so now instead of stealing an enemy's horse it's steal an enemy's plane or just a vehicle of some sort that's probably more doable but still that'd be wild anyway uh he then spent the rest of his life working as the tribe's historian speaking at various schools and organizations around the country and died at the age of 102 on april 3rd 2016 All right, we did it. I think it went pretty well. Knocked the rust off. We're good. We're great. All right. What's next? We talked about Native Americans. All right, I spoke too soon. What am I doing right now? Here's where here's the I could cut this and re-record it and you'd never know. But meh, whatever. I'm just I'm tired. I don't sleep well anymore. I'm functionally depressed for a variety of reasons. So we're just gonna transition into what we learned today. What did we learn? Number one, the Catawba is are not to be messed with. Uh, they will kill you while they're naked and moon you 
and smack their butt cheeks in front of you and do it with a smile. And even it just takes one of them. So don't mess with them, but go to their casino. Uh, number two, uh, the Wendigo, uh, apparently a native Canadian spirit that's super hungry and possesses people who are sick and they got to get killed for it. Uh, number three, Joseph medicine crow, the final war chief in uh, crow nation history, uh, used World War II as an opportunity to become a war chief and actually was able to do it pretty, pretty easily, honestly. So that's, so that's pretty cool. Next week on Our Weird World, we are looking at some con artists from history and really just kind of laughing at all of the gullible people that they fooled along the way. Uh, we got three stories of John Schmidt, Lord Gordon Gordon, which already sounds like a fake name because it is, and Juan Carlos Guzman Betancourt. Uh, going to be just some silly people doing silly things and getting away with it for a very long time. So looking forward to telling you those stories next week. That is it for today. Uh, thanks for listening. And if you got friends, tell them about it. Here's the thing. Hey, how about this? How about this? How about this? Instead of telling your friends, all right, go, go to the back catalog. All right, go, go to my website, johnhensonwrites.com. And then there's a podcast option up at the top. Go to that top menu. All the episodes are published there. Go find one of your favorite episodes and then share that on your Facebooks or your Twitters or LinkedIn even. Let people really be concerned with your professional reputation or whatever. I'm, oh boy, I'm tired. Anyway, do that. Share an episode on social media is what I'm saying. And also, keep it weird.